right. Uh, the scripture today is from Esther 4. So that's uh, chapter 4, verse 1, um, through chapter 5, verse 8. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came to her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would, sackcloth, excuse me, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathik, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what this was and why it was. Hathik went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction so that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. 
And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. This is the word of the Lord. Well, where did we leave this last week? Well, we left it where Haman and the king were celebrating, so much like a lot of people were doing yesterday. They all sat down and had a drink, raising a glass to the eagles. Yes, right? That's the same thing that happened to Haman and the king. Haman is given the right to go kill all the Jewish people, and in order to seal the deal, they sit down and they have a drink. And oftentimes, I think that we probably look at the things that are happening around us and think that that is how some people are responding in the world. That they don't actually see what's happening in the world. And all they're doing is sitting down and having a drink. I mean, when we look at the world, right, with our righteous eyes, we see that things are falling apart. At least that's what we think. We, we look at the world and we can point out everywhere where things are going astray. Very quickly, our hearts can say to our heads, look, you know what's going on. You see the reality of the thing. And we can look across the panacea of the world and see people just sitting back and having a drink. That they're not worried about what's going on. That's what's happening here. What happens is they're having a drink. And Mordecai, who has been in the king's service, who has been working for the king, all of a sudden steps into a place of lament. And so what we're going to look at today is how lament actually is an expectation that we should have for ourselves and how it moves us forward in what God is doing in the world. So what is the definition of lament? <laughs> lament is a recognition that things are not as they should be. It is a crying out to God, saying things are not as they should be. It is a brokenness in our spirit and our heart. The lament that happens here for Mordecai and the Jewish people is one of uh, resignation. When they see the decree that goes out from the king, it's not that they think they can change it. It's they believe that it is inevitable that they will die. And so they step into a place of lament. And when we stop and think about it, isn't that what we should be doing in the world today anyway? I mean, granted, we need to celebrate when things are able to be celebrated. We need to have birthdays and celebrate birthdays, and we need to celebrate new life, and we need to celebrate uh, eagles' wins, even. We need to celebrate 
when our families join together. We need to celebrate when we see an old friend. We need to celebrate in our lives. But we also need to recognize that the world is not as it's supposed to be. That there are children dying on islands because they're not allowed to get medical attention that they need. That there are women who post stories about abuse on Facebook and they get shouted down by people who have no reason to shout them down. It's a broken world. That even in our own relationships, we see our own hearts where we step into places where we should be caring and loving and responding in kindness. But instead we say, how could you possibly spill that milk on the floor? Milk on the floor. Easily cleaned up. But because the world is broken and because our hearts are lent towards a self of justification, our our hearts are lent to a self of our rightness, then we fall into a place where we look at others and say, you just don't get it. You just don't understand that I'm the most important person here. (laughs) And what happens here is Haman has elevated himself to the most important person and destruction is coming and the only response that can take place is lament. And so they tear their clothes and they put uh, ashes on themselves and they cry out. Interestingly enough, it doesn't say they pray. Now, in the history of Scripture, we see that these things of lament normally walk along with prayer. The author of Esther obviously is hiding things and bringing things out for us. He's, he, he's very important with his details. And so why is he hiding this prayer? There's a sense that he's always wanting God to remain hidden. There's a sense that he's always wanting to show what it's like to live in exile. There's a sense that he's always showing, wanting us to understand as we're reading it that sometimes it really seems like God's not present. And so if you really feel like God's not present, it's really hard to pray. But every action that is taking place here by the Jewish people is one that follows in prayer. Lament. We see it all through the Psalms, right? Where David says, why so downcast, O my soul? Where he says, why have you forsaken me, my God? My God, where are you? Why have you left me? There are people nipping at my heels. They want to destroy me. And there's a crying out of the pain that is caused in the world. We have plenty to lament in our world today. So why is lament important for us? Why is it good for us to step into that place? I want you to look at Esther. What's Esther's first reaction when she hears that Mordecai is in the process of lament? What does she want to do? Give him some clothes. She wants to cover him up. She wants to hide the fact that there is brokenness in the world. She wants to hide the fact that there's trouble a-brewing. She wants to hide the fact that he is hurting and that all of her people are hurting. Why? Because for five years, she's not had contact with Mordecai. For five years, she's been in the harem. For five years at this point, she's lived as the queen. And she has been cared for and loved. Now, She's a slave, guys, and and it's not an easy life. But she's been cared for, and she's been away from her people, and she's lost her identity. 
And so for her, the biggest worry at that point is not that the nation is going to die because she doesn't even know it. That's how insulated she is. She doesn't even know the decree has been given. And so her first thought is, hey, Mordecai, don't embarrass me. Mordecai, make sure you hide this. Mordecai, I'm sure this is just a personal story for you. You don't need to let everybody else know about it. Mordecai, there's no reason to, to like post this on your wall. If they had walls back then. Her desire is to cover it up, and we do that as well. One of the reasons why we don't like lament is because in lament, we have to acknowledge our own brokenness. I was talking to my wife this morning about kind of what has gone on this week in the United States. And because it's my passport country, I keep tabs on what's happening there. And with the Supreme Court justice being nominated and some of the stories that are coming out. And what it causes me to do in that moment is to think about how I lived as a teenage boy. In the places where I did not see a girl that I was with as a person, as someone created in the image of God, as an image bearer of who the Lord is, but instead saw her as an ends to a mean for me to receive pleasure. I don't want to look at that person. I don't want to see that. But here's the thing. I can't move on. I can't change. I can't be made new unless I first recognize brokenness. And when I recognize brokenness, I have two choices. I can be like Esther when she first sees it and try and cover it up and hide it and give excuses and walk away and withdraw. Or I can lament. I can cry out and say, the world is broken and I am broken. That we have fallen so far away from being the image bearer of a God who is ever faithful and ever pursuing in His love for mankind. That my own heart desires to be acknowledged and, and, and elevated as opposed to elevating and acknowledging the God who created and loves the universe. And at that moment when I begin to lament the brokenness of myself, I can then also move and lament the brokenness of the world around me. And all those things that are built up, because remember as we talked about last week, sin is particular. I've got it particularly sin. But it is always corporate. It affects the whole. And so I begin to recognize that and can lament that as well. I can cry out and say, this is not right and it is not hopeful for me to be here. So that's what we see happening. We see the people of the Jewish nation lamenting. And we see Esther trying to cover it up. Until she's told about it. And she's told what's going to happen. And she has to be told twice. 
She has to be let known because she knows she's not at this point seen the king for 30 days. Listen, check this out. She's the queen. She's not seen the king for 30 days. The king is not sleeping alone. Get this. He's had plenty of people come along. There's something that's happened here in these five years that the queen who has won this favor and been brought in as the queen no longer has as much favor because she's not seen the king for 30 days. It's not like he's, she's there and she's got all that sort of good graces that she had five years ago. And so she says, look, I could get killed the moment I step in there. I could get taken out. And what does Mordecai say to her? <laughs> he says, look. He says, don't believe that you'll be safe just because you don't say anything. You won't be safe. And as a matter of fact, God will find another way to save his people, but you won't be saved. Now, some people have read that as a threat that Mordecai is saying, I'll get you in the end. I don't know if that's the case or not. Doesn't seem to go along with his character. He's cared for his cousin. He's loved her. He raised her. But desperate times call for desperate measures, and we step into the flesh sometimes at those moments, don't we? And then he says this, but perhaps you were placed in this place for such a time as this. Now there's two things I want to step out of this lament because as we move forward, we've got to understand something that's happening here. We get two types of theologies, uh, two types of ways of thinking about our Christian life banging around on our head when we hear these things. One is that God will make a way. He will do it even if you don't help him. Right? And so in a sense, what we kind of hear is that God doesn't need you. <laughs> the other thing that we hear is that God puts you in this place for such a time as this. Now, doesn't that seem somewhat contradictory? It does. But we can't think of it in our Western dualistic mind. We can't think of it as an either-or sort of thing. We have to be able to grasp it as a both-and. Because what we see all throughout Scripture <clears throat> is that God will accomplish His purposes. But how He's chosen to accomplish His purposes is through people. And He steps in and He moves them to the place. What we're reminded in Ephesians is that we were created by God for good works that He's laid out before the foundation of the world. That's what we know. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. In that, we are, in each one of our moments, created for such a time as this. For this place. For right now. And if that is the case, then this part over here, this idea that God doesn't need you, well, in His completeness, that is true. In his pursuit, in his love for his creation, is that I do need you. Because he has chosen to do his work in and through us. So I want us to move out of our mind, and I need to do this all the time, that, well, God will do it. He'll get it done. And, and he doesn't really need me. No. 
Your neighbors who you need to care for, they need you because God puts you there for such a time as this. Those things that you believe are injustices that need to be toppled down or need to be repaired, if that's what God is moving you to do, he needs you to do it because he's put it in your heart. That person that you've met that know, you know needs to be loved and cared for and brought up in the knowledge of who God is, that's who God created you for at this time and place. But we're stuck somehow because we have this idea that God will do it and maybe it's me. <laughs> and we fall into a place of our brokenness because we're so reticent to admit it. Because <laughs> when we admit it, we either have to hide it or we have to lament it. And neither one is comfortable. <laughs> a disciple that worked with me told me, you've got to spend some time in sorrow. You move past that too quickly. Why? Because I didn't understand the gravity of my brokenness. I didn't understand that how it affected all those around me. I didn't understand that it helped me build little systems within my own family that caused more brokenness. And so I had to be reminded over and over again, sit in it, understand it, let it cause you to lament. But we notice Esther does something here. She takes those actions of lament and she flips them. By God's grace. Look, what happens is she says, okay, I understand what's going on now. I see what's happening. I understand that I need to do something. What you need to do is go tell all the people to pray for me or to, to, to fast, not pray because he doesn't use pray, to fast for me. So the very thing that they were already doing in lament, what Esther says is now you need to prepare. So you need to fast for me. See, there's a place where we step once we have this recognition and we understand the expectations that are on us is we move towards preparation for what God has called us to do, that place that he is leading us. And we move in that preparation in very similar ways. We move in a place of prayer and fasting of not doing it in our own will. Here's the reason why this is so cool. Esther, who's not seen the king in 30 days, is going to step in to the royal courts and hope that the king goes, yes, Esther, come and see me. And so before she met the king the first time, she spent 12 months being beautified, eating great food. And now she's going to spend three days eating do you know what you look like after three days of eating nothing? Some of us would look better. But the majority of us don't look that great. It's hard on our bodies to go three days, four days, two days, a couple hours without food. So she's getting ready to go to the king, the king that she's not seen for 30 days, and she's going to fast. That doesn't seem like a good plan. Why is that important for us to remember? It's because it reminds us that it's not in our strength that we do the things that God's called us to do. That it's not by my desires or not by my cunning or not by... the thing. It, it's, it's the fact that God is going to provide the way. He's going to walk in that direction. He's going to equip us for the things that He's called us to do. He's going to empower us to do the things that He's called us to do. 
And so we prepare ourselves. We pray. We fast. When we feel convicted and called to move in a direction, then we prepare ourselves. Why? Because there are going to be people who oppose it. There are going to be people who look at it and say, that's crazy. Why are you doing that? That makes no sense. You should be eating if you're going to go see the king. And she prepares herself and she prepares her heart. But she's also really smart. Because she knows, you know how she goes to see the king? She puts on what? The royal robe. She dresses as the queen. She wants to remind him of the power that she has. And so it reminds us that as we are executing the works that God has laid out for us, is that we've got to be keen. We've got to be smart about it. We can't just go do it. We've got to be planned and we've got to think through it and we've got to know how it is to reach hearts. We've got to know how it is to step into those places. And God does that for us. He revealed it to Esther. He said, you got to put on your robes, right? Put on your royal robes and go in there and live that way. How amazing is that? We have this little break that takes place after the first banquet. What happens is she has this banquet and they say, what do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom. Hyperbole. He would never give her half the kingdom. Just what they say. And she says, well, come tomorrow and I'll I'll tell you. Come tomorrow and I'll tell you. She's setting him up because what she's done is she said, look, if you come tomorrow, you've already agreed. That's what she says here. Look, look, it's so interesting. She says, If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill the request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. Catch what she's just done. She doesn't even tell him what's going to be requested and says, If you come, you've agreed. In some sense for us, we have to assume the yes. Why? Because we as followers of Christ step into places with delight. Because we believe God is working and doing things. And so in that, we assume the yes. We believe that he is doing what he wants to do and will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And yes, that even for a time such as this, I've been placed here. Because he could do it however he wants, but for whatever reason, he's chosen me to be here to do this. And so I can step in with a yes. She knows. She's got it. As soon as the king says, yes, we'll be here, it's a yes, and all our people are saved. We, We watch what happens after a brief little interlude. This brief little interlude that takes place. We're jumping ahead a little bit here because two reasons. One, we only have one more Sunday to get through the rest of the book of Esther. And two, because we only have one more Sunday to get through the rest of the book of Esther. So what takes place here is there's this little interlude that takes place between the first banquet and the second banquet. And on Wednesday, if you look on the Fremantle Church Facebook page, you'll see a writing about how that relates to our own hearts. And that interlude is where the king remembers that Mordecai saved him, and he has Haman come in and say, hey, what should I do to honor somebody who saved my life? And and Haman thinks he's talking about Haman, and so he says, you should treat him like the king. And he says, great. And he says, go do that to Mordecai. That's in between the first banquet and the second banquet. 
And there's a beautiful story about God's mercy and grace in that. But then I just want you to flip over in your, in your Bibles or on your devices to the end of chapter 6 and the first of chapter 7. And we see what God is doing in this place and time. That Esther has them come over and she lets them know and says, look, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king in your sight, let my life be granted me for this wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold and I and my people are to be destroyed. It's the first time that she reveals that she's Jewish and to be annihilated. And if we've been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. But your affection, affliction, is not to be compared. Affection, affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then she's saying, look, you're going to lose me in this. And then the king said, who is this man? And she says, the foreign enemy is the wicked Haman. The wicked Haman. It is hard for us to lament. But if we don't lament, if we don't recognize, if we cover it up, then we can't move to the place of preparation of the things that God has called us to for such a time as this. And so we move in delight and in the yes because we know, just as we see here, that God accomplishes what he sends forth. And that the nation of Israel, at that point, is in the process of being saved. We'll hear the rest of the story next week. Let me pray for us. Father, let these words be your words. If they're not, let them burn up and pass away. But if they are, let them bring glory and honor to you and let them take root in our lives and bear good fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.